Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our latest episode of NFT Sundays. I am Colborne Bell of the Museum of Crypto Art. I am joined today uh, by fine artist Marjan Mogadam. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. It's awesome to be here. Thank you, Colborne. Absolutely. Uh, I'd love to, to really just give it over to you and let people know a bit about your story, uh, your art practice, and how you came to be involved with NFTs. Okay, I'm, I'm going to start by saying I'm actually not in my studio in Brooklyn, but up in the uh, Adirondacks, thus the uh, Naughty Pine background. Yeah. <laughs> Just wanted to clarify. Um, I'm basically a digital artist um, and uh, I work primarily with 3D CG. I'm known mostly for my uh, original and unique style of figuration, um, pioneering digital artwork over the course of the decades. Um, transgressive art hacks on the internet mm. uh, and a critical discourse. And uh, I usually uh, exhibit work as animation, uh, wall-hung animated paintings, uh, AR, VR, XR, mixed reality, net art, um, large format prints. I just opened a show at uh, Dallas Contemporary Center for Art and Technology with large format print. <laughs> um, I also do sculptures. I just finished a physical sculpture commission for the Hillsborough Castle Park in the UK. I also do installations, avatar paintings, and of course, since uh, you know, mid 2020, NFTs. Um, I'm originally from Iran. I'm an immigrant and a political refugee. And uh, I you know, came to New York and uh, you know, I've been sort of self-supporting since the age of 21, basically working primarily with technology. And in addition to the fine arts, digital art that I create and exhibit, I'm also a tenure full professor of digital art and XR at the Brooklyn campus of uh, LIU in New York City. Yeah, you know, I love how everybody in this space, you know, is <laughs> does a million things. It's just absolutely incredible. So, you know, having an established digital practice, right, having been a creator in New York City for, for many, many years, I'm curious to you what sparked your interest in NFTs and kind of what the promise of this new medium was. Well, you know, I, I think I have to answer that question and I like the way you phrased it because you know, my, my longstanding practice is, uh, has been all about the difficulties that digital artists had in terms of acceptance in mm. contemporary art. I mean, on some levels, I feel as if for, you know, many decades, digital art didn't even have the legitimacy of video art or performance art. And it was always sort of like marginalized and underrepresented in terms of the contemporary art market. Um, you know, one of my first exhibited uh, pieces was a computer animation I did on the early Commodore 64 back in 1984. Wow. And I was trying to show it at a East Village Gallery then. And they told me I couldn't call it computer art because there was no such thing. So I had to actually call the piece video art because they dealt with video art. <laughs> like that was a medium they understood. But it was like, no, we don't know if this like you can't like computer art is not art. We can't show that. But I mean, I'm just bringing that up just to let you know how many times I've come across what used to be a lot of prejudices against the medium, not the content or the work per se, mm. far more so with, I think, any, many of the other mass media of the 20th century. And I think a lot of these attitudes endured over the course of the years. And 
Um, so I think for me, whenever I was trying, whenever I was exhibiting work for sale and selling them, I always found myself materializing the digital work that I did as either large format prints or sculpture or some type of a physical uh, derivative work uh, for sale because the original couldn't really be sold. But in my mind and in my experience and in my practice, you know, the original was the 3D animation or the AR or the VR or, you know, whatever the actual uh, digital file and work was. But it seemed as if that didn't really have um, the type of, uh, uh, you know, form or structure to it that fit uh, the collecting market. So it was always about the derivative works. The thing that got me immediately about NFTs and, and I should also add, there were always issues in sending out animation files on a USB and, and even encrypting, encrypting them. I, I tried that at one point. It became an issue to maintain uh, the encryption keys. Um, so there were also real technical issues, I think, in terms of limiting editions, controlling that, so on and so forth. So when NFTs came out, to me, it was like, wow, I've been waiting for this my whole life. And for me, NFTs are more than just a recording of the provenance, which mm. arguably works for traditional uh, analog works of art, like painting, JPEGs of paintings, etc. Sure. But there's a real um, there's a real recognition that digital originals can be sold as originals instead yeah. of a derivative work. And I think this is the fundamental art historic shift for digital art that it can be sold and tracked in terms of provenance in its original form. And I think that's a critical distinction that needs to be made for natively digital works such as mine. I uh, can't stress that point enough. Had a wonderful conversation uh, with Rhea Myers also okay. on, on the same uh, topic about, you know, the, the previously infinitely reproducible nature of digital work and this giving its kind of the hallmark of being the original. Uh, I think that's exceptionally powerful. I think, again, also what you were describing of um, so much of the boxing in of the traditional art world and then bringing it to crypto where there's already been a major abstraction between you know, something like a, a Bitcoin, which is really just a number on a screen, but it's it has value and it holds that. And if you control the keys, then you are the owner. Um, and then taking that original crypto philosophy, bringing it to art and culture. Uh, so I think you make some, some incredibly salient points there. Yeah, I mean, you, I, I, I like what you brought up with Bitcoin and the sort of conceptual value of Bitcoin. Right. But, you know, when you, when you sort of look at contemporary art and, you know, the, the traditional conventional practices of the contemporary art market, much of it is based on constructed value to begin with. Much of it is based mm. on this sort of like a, a conceptual premise for a work that is completely a constructed idea. So to transpose that to the digital and the blockchain with cryptocurrencies and then NFTs, to me, is a natural evolution of an existing phenomenon into uh, technology. And, you know, I know your practice, uh, it, it's, it actually straddles collectors. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, uh, who you are seeing kind of, you know, jump more on the traditional side, but also the types of people that you're attracting 
from more of a crypto native side. Uh, and you know, if you are seeing kind of just a, a broad shift in taste and preference for this type of work. Well, you know, that's an interesting question because the way I came into NFTs is because this guy DM me <laughs> and said, will you please tokenize your art so I can buy it? Yeah. And, and, and I was like, I kind of had an idea of what, I mean, this was like January, 2020. And I kind of had an idea of NFTs had seen some stuff, uh, on social media, but I wasn't really taking it seriously. But I think that DM, you know, made me think about it. Like, here's an interesting idea. Mm. And and I looked into it. And that's when I realized, I mean, finally, I get to do an animation and sell the animation, you know, instead of having to turn it into a video art object, you know, or some other thing, physical thing that could actually be sold. Um, so I came on board on Super Rare, I think, in September 2020. And uh, the, uh, with the, you know, taking the knee in solidarity, which uh, yeah. with my Genesis piece, piece, which since has been shown in the Proof of Art, A Brief History of Digital Art and NFTs, the first IRL museum show in Linz, Austria uh, uh, last year. Um, and so that piece and my second piece, which was Capital, and sort of exploring, you know, uh, the sculptural concept behind the transition from fiat to crypto. Uh, both of those piece, me, pieces immediately went to a crypto collector. Yeah. I mean, they've since sold into the third market. But the, so the first collectors were crypto people or NFT collectors or people who were part of the scene, uh, people who had been collecting since 2018. So they were basically insiders. And and I think that continued with, you know, 4156, uh, Marat Cremo. And these are like pretty big collectors in, in terms of NFT art. I think the, the largest, almost the period. largest, yeah. And yeah. Moma's collection bought <laughs> yeah. my Bese or Kiss, which is one of my best known pieces. He's another big major collection. Yeah. And it wasn't until I think around the fall when, um, you know, I, I met with Novo Crypto and she's actually, uh, uh, she's a blockchain crypto NFT person from Switzerland, but she's also a, a very much a fine arts collector. I mean, she travels yeah. all over the world. She goes to all the art fairs. So she's someone who's uh, basically total contemporary art, fine arts collector native, if you may. Right. But she's also migrated into the NFT crypto space with tremendous amount of uh, interest. In not just in NFTs, but also crypto and the blockchain. So I think she's really interesting. And I think after that, I sold to Mondoir as another big NFT art collector. Huge. And then uh, I started to sell to traditional art collectors, uh, you know, who uh, Nicole from Vertical Crypto Art actually yeah. <laughs> curated that connection. And I did a commission of a glitch goddess for a couple who are who have a pretty, pretty impressive art collection. I mean, because uh, they sort of, uh, they had asked me to also consider maybe doing some pieces uh, that were loosely based on existing pieces they had in their art collection. So they kind of send me, you know, some pictures of the pieces they had. And these were like pretty, I would say, major and significant works of art. Um, so they had a pretty major art collection. So I think that things are slowly starting to change. Because this particular couple, I was their second NFT purchase and in yeah. the first digital art purchase. That's incredible. I remember actually so well when uh, taking a knee in solidarity, solidarity came online to Super Rare because, again, unlike 
anything that had been seen at the time. It felt like very advanced at a time when the market was, you know, maturing, developing. But um, that piece was incredibly powerful and obviously, you know, left such a deep impression. Like, can't stress enough to people out there, like how much that first one is kind of seen and really does begin that journey um, and kind of sets like really a, a benchmark for everything else that is to come. Um, yeah, actually, a curator uh, contacted me recently for a show in the fall, and and she really wanted taking the knee. She was like, I think that's one of the most powerful pieces of our time. And I was like, you know, thank you. But uh, no, I actually remember sometime like in, a year ago in the spring when Jerry Saltz, the art critic, was making fun out of NFTs. <laughs> this before he did the, uh, you know, the the NFT on Super Rare. Right. right. But um he uh so he was kind of i don't know i can't remember what the tweet exactly was what a statement about nfts was but it was sort of dismissive of the work not really uh having much substance to it and i i had somebody tagged me and, and they responded to jerry uh, salt saying have you seen the marginalized work because that's my twitter handle um and and i thanked them for that and everybody's attitude was how could he say that if he hasn't i mean has he seen your work and how could he say that about nfts when you're creating you know, very serious, substantial work with a critical discourse in the space. And, you know, it's interesting that we have very much overcome that narrative. It was a major talking point for a while that this is just screensaver arts or, you know, this is and it, it just showed that I think people were not digging enough or maybe they were just spending time on OpenSea and conflating uh, the idea of an NFT as only an art object when it can be many other things. It's very much why I prefer the term crypto art. I don't know if, if you have an opinion on that. I personally despise the term NFT art. I think the correct, <laughs> I think the correct term should be, if you're going to speak to crypto it in art. that way, is, well, is art NFT. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you have any thoughts. You know, yet. here's an interesting idea, because you brought up a really good point in terms of that distinction. Um, you know, NFT is just a technology. Right. You know, whereas uh, crypto art is more of a, a, of a movement, if you may, that yes. encompasses uh, a philosophy, uh, various different art forms. So uh, it's a bigger cultural movement and footprint, if you may, mm. than just the term NFT. Mm. Um, you know, NFT can be like eBay. <laughs> yes. You know, it can yeah. be Etsy. Right. Uh, whereas crypto art is a movement. Yeah. And, and I, I would make that distinction absolutely. But uh, the, taking the knee was originally an art hack I did uh, in, you know, Art Basel, Switzerland, June 2020, when, when the whole world had erupted in protests and solidarity with BLM. So when I first came into the NFTs piece, of course, the version I already did hacked the Art Basel site, which was copyrighted content. So yeah. I couldn't use that. So I adapted it specifically for sale as a, as in for crypto, if you may. As, in other words, here's like a whole concept of crypto art. I had to completely redo that piece, replacing all the website content with GAN generated art. Um, to make it copyright clear for sale specifically for cryptocurrency. So even when you sort of look at that, it's like creating the work specifically as crypto art. Yes. Or, so, yeah. But something I wanted to bring up, because mm. I respect all the experiments with uh, in the NFT and blockchain space and crypto art space, 
But, you know, there is this sort of theory of, you know, media that says all new media starts as a toy first. It's like a fun toy. And when you sort of look at a lot of stuff in this space, it's on the toy stage. The next stage that happens in terms of the evolution of the media or medium is magic. Mm. So here you get the utilities, the interactivity on such and such a date, this changes or that changes. Mm. And then the third stage of the evolution of a media, you get art. Mm. So when you sort of consider that and look at the origins of crypto art since 2018, you can almost see that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Toy, magic, and now art. And I think we're very, and, and but what I think is really interesting is that in that quintessentially post-digital multitasking sort of way all three are happening simultaneously we still have toy and we need to have the toy to keep evolving it we have the magic we need the magic to keep evolving it and we also now have the art yeah yeah that's oh i i find that uh exceptionally powerful. I've obviously tried to go back and kind of reconcile the story and and kind of the things that I was collecting and um, obviously, you know, being on mostly platforms like Super Rare, Known Origin, Async Art, um, you know, with a focus on kind of like one of one and, and limited edition and storytelling and then taking those cultural objects, artifacts into digital environments and worlds. Um, I'm curious just how you feel about, you know, is you, do you feel that your art is kind of built for the metaverse? Do you want people to go experience it in these ways? How do you want your art to be viewed and kind of where can it be extended in the future? I, I kind of, you know, I, I'm sort of like form agnostic, I sometimes think, because I work in 3D CG. Right. And um, so, you know, I could output it from one camera view animation where I can output it as a 360 uh, render that you can scroll in. Yeah. Or I could actually output it as WebGL. So it's, you know, actual 3D on a website or I can deliver it for, you know, HMDs in terms of VR. I could deliver it as large format prints and, you know, render huge res. You know, I just did that with a glitch goddess where I rendered mm. out the frames from one of my glitch goddess NFTs, uh, you know, at, at very high resolutions, 20, 30,000 pixels for wow. Vancouver winter arts festival. It was hung as, you know, outdoor, a large format prints. A lo- <laughs> and I literally 3d printed a 30 foot inflatable uh, sculpture of the glitch goddess for the same uh, festival. So, I mean, to me, that's how I am. I, I don't look at form as like a defining mm. uh, aspect of my practice. I look at form as a defining structure for a particular piece that I'm doing. Mm. So if I'm doing a print, it's going to be a print. If it's VR, it's going to be a VR. If it's an art hack, it's mixed reality, track shot, internet, art hack. So I, I, I don't look at form as something that defines my practice because in 3D CG, I can output as anything. So I look at it more as, uh, you know, something that defines a particular piece. But moving in the future, yeah, I'd love to do more uh, VR and, you know, 360. But what happens with VR and 360 
in my experience, because I've, I've been working with it for a very long time, is this sort of promise of wide adoption just never <laughs> materializes. You know, yes. it was the same thing in the 90s, virtual reality. I did yes. a show with Jaron Lanier, you know, in the 1990s in, in a gallery in Soho. It was one of the first major computer art shows in Soho, synesthesia it was called. I recently actually digitized the opening for uh, an artist in residency I'm doing with Gazelli uh in london this august uh, but um because they wanted a lot of the older work so i'm like in the process of digitizing everything for them but um you know uh but the promise didn't really materialize in the 90s and in every decade you know and and i think at this point everybody knows it so much they had to change virtual reality to the metaverse because you know it's like marketing's like we need a new term <laughs> VR is just not cutting it anymore. Right. So, you know, whether that's actually going to now change, I don't know. I mean, I think every 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 version of a future there is in every SF book, as yeah. the mythology of our world sort of predicts some some form of VR or the metaverse is a ubiquitous part of our daily experience to the same extent, let's say, that your mobile phone is today. So whether we like it or not, it's it seems to be a big part of all the all the different ways in which we imagine the future. Yeah, you know, I'm personally interested in, in VR as a tool for uh, inducing empathy. Um, and but I also very much question, you know, uh, the escapist nature of it all. Um, all to just turn it back, you know, I'm, I'm curious to, you know, hear more about your intent with subject matter, with identity, uh, with, with form as, as body and, and sculpture, um, if you could share some words there. Yeah, actually, that's a good question, because that's at the heart of, you know, a lot of the work that I now do. Um, you know, I, I really feel as if, you know, like, Maybe just to really understand the context, or historically speaking, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, the modernists were flattening the picture plane and deconstructing faces and bodies as a way of capturing the essence of their time with what was, you know, very shocking new art. But that was also essential to the understanding of not just modernism, but all the ways in which the world was changing a hundred years ago. So, I mean, here we are today, and I very much feel as if there is there are there are new styles of figuration in mm. terms of posthumanism mm. uh, and the post-digital that have to capture and convey uh, the essence of everything that's happening in our time. And that's what I do with my bodies and um, my digital bodies. And the, the the central idea is for me is how are we changing? So I might start with a base uh, humanoid that very much resembles and moves uh, mocap wise, the way a physical body does. Yeah. But then I'm constantly changing, morphing that body and you know, referencing art history, sculpture, cinema, video games, internet meme space, et cetera, simultaneously. And so I create these sort of bodies in flux because that's what it feels like to me to sort of straddle the digital and the physical simultaneously. You know, I'm many different states of being. You know, so much of the art of the uh, 20th century was strategies of being. Mm. So what is being in the 21st century? And it's a completely different phenomenon. You know, because I'm like looking at 20 different things on my hand, looking at something on my screen. 
I'm inhabiting so many different states of being at the same time. That's why my bodies are always constantly morphing. And, you know, I originally did when I first did the glitch goddess, which went viral with millions of views, not just on my uh, page, but also on, you know, all these other art accounts on the internet. Um, the, The whole idea was she was glitching the art historic convention that the female form is singular. um, So she was going from slender to heavy to pregnant, old, stylized, abstract, glitched. And I'm now literally just finished that with a male. (laughs) So Mm. I now have 20 male uh, glitched gods. So it's about exploring the post-human male identity. Um, And I'm dropping those with Quantum on uh, June 14th. And, uh, you know, I had, I literally hold up for like an extended period of time animating them. And I love each one of them because, you know, in my, I call my technique of animation chronometric sculpture because, you know, it combines ideals of animation and art. But I always say like in my ideal animation, I should be able to hit 3D print on every frame yeah. and, and deliver a sculpture <laughs> and hit on a color printer and deliver a 2D print. Like every frame has to deliver that performance. And I really feel as if I was able to do that with my entire Glitch Goddess collection, a good bit of which sold into top collections as NFTs and also IRL collections. And I now feel like I've done that with males. And and, um, previously I'd done it also with a non-binary figure. So yeah, the collection drops uh, uh, on Quantum NFT uh, on June 14th, 20 uh, Glitch Gods. Actually only 18 are for sale because one goes to Quantum. one goes to me and I guess 18 are up for sale, but, um, and I, I love, I love all of them. And, uh, you know, I, I almost really want to just start like 3d printing them. And, um, so, well, you know, let's... but that's, that's the interesting, that's the fun, that's the really interesting part of NFTs. Cause yeah. you know, I normally wouldn't have done 20. There's no way I would have done that. Yeah. But quantum came to me and they said 20. I said, well, that's a lot. And so I said, you know what, I usually I do so many different body types in a single animation, I figured I'd just break them down into separate animations and then really explore each transformation. Mm. So it was an interesting way for me to work and it really forced me to re-examine what I do. So sometimes the structure of crypto art and NFTs itself can bring about really interesting work. And it's kind of also the beauty of the digital, right, is that you always have access to that previous body of work. You can always go back and kind of re-examine it through a new lens, reconstruct, recreate, and continue to play with that that form, that body. Um, yes. So I think, I don't know, I'm totally guessing here, but, you know, as you continue your practice and your exploration, as these ideas of, of who we are and who we're becoming evolve, you almost have like a base layer to continue to experiment uh, around those ideas. And, and for me, that's very exciting. Yeah. I, I also wanted to say, you know, I have another figure, Lord S, which is really my, probably my most avant-garde 3D CG figure in my style of animation. And I sold two uh, NFTs on uh, of her. One, one went to actually a European collector, uh, Truffle King, who's <laughs> a great art collector, but, you know, yeah. he's also an art collector. He has a print as well of nice. my Lord S. And the second one went to the Flamingo Dow. Um, and I was really surprised when both of those sold. Because mm. th- to me, those pieces are like such, th- those really, for me, kind of capture 
the most experimental avant-garde approach I have to an animated figure as a painting composition. I and, have, yeah, I have yeah. always seen the avant-garde in this space, the experimental in this space be rewarded, right? Be Which what? Is be rewarded or remunerated. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think people want to see the furthest reach of the expression at all times. And I think that's very exciting and invigorating for artists. You know, you bring up such a good point, Colburn, because when you think about it, art historically speaking, many of the greatest avant-garde pieces of the 20th century became a thing because of collectors. Mm. It, it was the collector adoption of that brand new, original, unique vision mm. that allowed it to flourish. So collectors, especially when you look at the avant-garde of the 20th century, uh, played a huge part. I mean, it was really the triad of collector, gallerist, and art critic <laughs> that created, right. that birthed the entire art movements. It was literally that triad. But collectors have played such a huge, significant part in that. How do you think that triad is changing? Do you see it changing? Everybody obviously talks about disintermediation. Well, you know, you know it's like, you know, it comes down to the to the heart of our time of, you know, spam versus authenticity. Uh, you know, yeah. so much art criticism has lost um, its, its, uh, Audience, its legitimacy on some levels. Yeah. You know, there, I mean, nowadays people just assume if you're written about it, it's because you paid for it. You yeah. know, like I end up being in so many of these small blogs because I don't pay to get written about it. It's like all these young people discover my art, they fall in love with it, they find me and they write about it. Yeah. And and because um, I take a totally organic approach to this. And so the art criticism part, I mean, first, you need to 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 bring back art criticism in a manner that has uh, some trust and legitimacy to it. But, you know, that's a bigger problem with mainstream media right now, too. Totally. And so, you know, I think we've lost, you know, my my students, like whenever they talk, it's like the most important thing to them is authenticity. Yeah. And when you think about it, they're, they're a generation that's grown up with wall-to-wall -wall spam. Yeah. And, and, you know, and guess what the result is? The highest value for them is authenticity. Somebody who sounds real. Something they read that sounds or reads real to them is very important. So art criticism needs to find itself the same way media needs to find itself. Mm. as something that's objective and fair uh, as opposed to spam whatever the spam source funding source of the spam is and um i think that we have a crisis of trust in uh civilization absolutely and its institutions and and what binds us together and this is where art comes in because i think that art is a really big part of our sense making process it's how we become aware of the profound aspects of being and, you know, the oldest idea of art is truth and beauty. Yeah. And that's a really complex phenomenon. And it keeps growing and evolving. There are things we consider that are parts of truth and beauty in our world today that would have horrified people 100 years ago. But that's what we got to do. We got to keep pushing that boundary. But that authenticity, that profound aspect of being is part of the revealing the truth and beauty in art. And so I think artists in our world today have to bring that have to sort of re-energize the profound as part of our cultural sense-making process. Everybody in our world needs it. We need more than just authenticity. We also need the profound experience of being. 
Let's see if I can try and like relate it to your experience in New York City and experiencing uh, that city because I think what I saw in, in my time here and there and especially in America is like a, a dilution of the culture, like continuing to make everything like very saccharine, sweet, quickly consumable, people not taking the time to digest and go deep. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, beyond uh, just like lack of faith in institutions, if you saw a major cultural shift in the time that you were in a place like that? Yeah, well, the, the, it's, you know, on some levels, part, part of it has to do with the technology, right. um, you know, unfortunately, because <laughs> you know, my whole life is technology. But I have to admit that the evolution of technology has created uh, what is referred to as the flatness problem of mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the same way screens flatten 3D physical space. So right. even if you could have 3D, it's still being viewed through a 2D screen. So there's a flattening of the physical. There's a flattening of experience. There's a, there's a reduction of nuance and complexity in an 800-word blog piece or, you know, 50-word, let's say, clickbait headline. So everything becomes flatness. Every, everything becomes reduction. And so the ideas of the profound nuance, complexity, all these things are lost. And, you know, when half our experience is the digital, half our experience is a sort of flattened culture, flattened nature of experience, guess what happens to us? Uh, we become highly unrealized as beings who need a contemplative space, reflection, um, you know, intros in, uh, introspection. We need these things. And when we don't have them, uh, the nature of our experience changes. And um, so on some levels, you sort of look at how everybody's stressed by uh, the way and manner in which media and the digital is constantly manipulating them. Mm. Um, how many of us are subject to mimetic cascades and you know, mm. we get caught up in whatever was trending yesterday and have all these like emotional reactions to it. And, and, and everybody gets very exhausted by that. Everybody gets very mm. stressed by that. So we're all caught in this web. We all know it's unhealthy. Um, but I, I still feel like, you know, like with my art hacks, I, there's no artist statement for my art hacks. Right. Yet if you go and look at them and read all the comments from regular people, gallerists, uh, Jerry Saltz, <laughs> I, I mean, all the art, there's art world people who comment on it. Everybody gets what I'm saying. Yeah. And everybody engages in the, in, in the greater dialogue that my art hack is bringing about. And, and I think that that's what artists can do. You know, you really don't need the white cube gallery and the context and the gallery assistant whispering in your ear why this is so important or a two-page statement written by a grad student as to what this art is about. You can create work that is profound and meaningful and compelling, and it creates a way for people to, so to pause in their feed, to look mm. at art. Mm. to engage in the experience and be transformed by it. And that's really kind of what I'm interested in. Yeah, I actually remember you telling me in New York uh, how you just did various A-B testing on different social media platforms to develop the thing that captures people and draws them in. And I don't yeah. want you to reveal any of your secrets if you don't <laughs> want to. Um, but it was interesting for me and actually taught, taught me a lot as well, yeah. Yeah, I sometimes, honestly, I don't know. My last art hack from Freeze New York is like over a million views. It's, I think it's got like 
eight, 9,000 shares on Facebook. I, it's several hundred comments. It's doing really well. And I literally thought it wasn't going to do well yeah. because I, I sort of was, was playing with a lot of different ideas that I, that were concerning, concerning me. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I should get into this or if I should put this in or not. And I said, you know what? Ultimately, I'm doing the art hacks for myself. So right. this is my sense making. This is how I'm trying to figure out what is happening to me. So I put in all the things that I thought would take away from the work. And guess what? It's the thing that most people connect with. So I don't I don't always know. But yeah. sometimes they think, you know, when, when you sort of come as, as, as much of a cliche as it is, when you come from the heart, there are other hearts that connect to it. I agree with that. Do you think, um, kind of as a follow-up, do you think there is an, uh, perhaps like a collective attack on, on subtlety? Yeah. 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 I mean, they, they, it's, it's, you know, this is the attention economy. It's right. like the reptilian brain. I hate to say it. Yeah. We're all, we all, everything's about our base instincts everything and we're exposed to powerful technologies that manipulate that and uh never before have we been exposed to such powerful technologies that are designed to trigger uh, all of our base instincts yeah and there's something terrifying about that i mean you sort of if you get a sense there that the cohesive gel of our society is is eroding away it really is yeah uh because you know i'll let me i mean i know we're running out of time so i'll close with this you know i'm sure. um i deal a lot with contemporary philosophy as well uh and you know, i actually read philosophy regularly which is probably why i'm an academic because i have a real interest in that as well not just point and click classes which i teach as well but, you know, Peter Sloterdijk is, you know, one of my, you know, favorite uh, contemporary uh, philosophers. And, and he's written extensively. His entire Bubbles uh, trilogy is about how we have become transformed. Yeah. And, um, you know, some and, and, you know, he always sort of cites uh, Cicero. And, you know, Cicero once said in, in ancient times that books are letters to friends we haven't met yet. Mm. So you have this sort of civilizational attitude of friendship in, in something you spent six months or five years of your life creating. And you have this attitude of friendship towards whoever reads it, including people who hate you, who might even hate you more after reading the book. But take a moment to consider the importance of this civility of civilization that he's talking mm. about mm. And, and contrast that against my posts or FUs to, you know, People, enemies I haven't met yet, but I've right. sort of conjured them in my head. So, so yeah, it's because so much of this technology is manipulating us to operate from base instincts instead of something that has more to do with how we've evolved. Wonderful. Uh, I'd love for you to just, as we end, let people know where they can find you, where they can find your work, if they want to get in touch, uh, if you're open to that. Yeah. Sure. Actually, the best way is just to go to my website because you will get the links to everything else from that. And that is M-A-R-J-A-N.com. Um, so it's easy to remember. It's easy to find. I've had that domain since 1995. So. 
and, uh, and and all my social links are there, uh, latest news, or, or I usually update every two or three weeks, or, you know, I'm, I probably update more on my social media, but you will find all that uh, on marshawn.com. Super. All right. Thank you so much, Marjan. Thank you, Colburn. Yeah. Uh, Colborn, artist Colburn. Marjan, and uh, thank you to Dementi for everything. Thank you. Breaking news. <laughs>